Well, our text today comes to us from Ephesians. We have two more weeks in Ephesians, and then we will take a few uh, Sundays in the birth narratives of Luke's gospel as we start a new series in the gospel of Luke. But our text today is quite a familiar one. It has always been quite popular uh, in the church. It is about the spiritual armor of God and the spiritual warfare uh, we, we address in the world. Um, one thing before I read it, just to, to frame this up for you. You may have heard of the book uh, drawn, whose title is drawn from this passage, This Present Darkness, uh, a book of Christian fiction about spiritual warfare. And I think that book presents a way of thinking about this passage that has formed and shaped us, whether or not we've ever read it. And that is that this armor is is individualistic. It's something that I put on. It's uh, somewhat speculative. There are angels and demons all around us and a little bit terrifying, frankly, in some ways. I want to encourage you to hear in this passage that the Apostle Paul is giving a summary of the whole book, which you remember falls down into this pattern of thinking. There's an indicative truth of who we are in Christ. And then there's an imperative call that we live as we really are when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's the call that is a corporate call. It's a call to live in the life of the church and to see our identity in Christ, that great warrior from Isaiah who has redeemed us from our sins. So this is God's holy word for us today. Ephesians chapter 6, reading from verse 10 to verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the devil, of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in our prayer found in the bulletin. Our Father... We have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Our outline found in the worship bulletin looks first at um, the fact that we need... God's armor to stand firm against the devil. Uh, The first point is, is the necessity of this armor. The second point, as it were, is the character of this armor. 
God's armor is spiritual because the battle we fight is not against flesh and blood. And third and finally, uh, we turn to prayer. That we must pray at all times, as the apostle does, for boldness. For we are all, uh, after his model, ambassadors in chains. Now this uh, famous verse, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, it was about uh, 30 years ago, I was a freshman in high school, when the novel, uh, Christian Fiction, by Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness, came out. And it has sold millions of copies and hugely influenced our understanding of this passage and how we think about uh, spiritual warfare, as it were. And it's interesting that, that as, as popular as this passage is, it was very popular and very hotly contested in the ancient church as well. Uh, the Gnostic sect... Of, uh, which was a sect of Christianity, drew on uh, this verse uh, to prove their very speculative ideas that there was a whole, uh, a whole range of, of spiritual beings that had to be navigated on one's soul's passage to the heavenly places. And the church fathers read this text and tried to redirect some of the Gnostic confusion. And the key for the church fathers and the key for us today is to not read this passage in isolation. Not read it in isolation, but to see it what, what it is. It's Paul's, um, as the ancient rhetoricians would call it, peroration. It's his great emotional closing argument. It's his crowning conclusion of this letter to the church in Ephesus. And what he is doing here is tying together everything that he has been developing throughout this. The mighty power, power of God, his riches, his abundance, our fundamental dependence upon him for everything. We were formerly dead in our trespasses, but now are alive because of God's mighty provision. And also, as Ephesians has been talking since the, the beginning, as Paul has been talking since the beginning of this book, the great forces arrayed against this gospel. Remember that when we formerly walked in sin, in chapter 2, Paul says, We were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's doing a callback to that idea that the life of the old man, our life in sin, was a life in bondage to spiritual forces. And so we need to read this conclusion in the context of the entirety of the book, not in isolation. And, and what is one of the broad themes of the book? This, this pattern of Paul for three chapters loading us up with knowledge, with understanding of the great truth of what God has done to deliver us and save us. His eternal plan now brought to fruition the, the indicative facts of who we are in Christ. And then turning to how this new reality, this new creation is working itself out in the body of Christ, in the believers in the local church. These instructions for the believers, you remember, all throughout, even when we were looking at relations in the home, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, these relationships were not merely personal and ethical, but they were corporate and communal. This is where the unity of body of Christ comes from. And, and this passage, this closing of Paul, is explaining to that church in Ephesus, as they've heard this beautiful picture be presented to them, why it is so difficult to do what he says in chapter 4. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 
You know the answer, brothers and sisters, why it is so hard, why we fall so short. Satan doesn't want us to. The Christian life is difficult because evil and sin are real. And the line between good and evil goes down through our very hearts. The old man has, yes, been put to death, but we still need to put him off. We need to turn from his ways, which still cling to us. And the new man, yes, has been clothed in Christ, each and every one of us, and yet is struggling. It's a struggle to live, as in fact we really are as children of God, children of light. And so that's what this closing call is. Um, So the first point I want to focus on is the necessity of the armor. We need God's armor to stand firm against the devil. Paul's closing words in his body. This is the closing of his letter. um, Begin with this call. Finally, or from now on, could also be understood as be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul began in chapter 1 with a prayer that the faithful saints in Ephesus may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? He started by pointing us towards God's power in our salvation. And do you remember what that power is? The power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might It's the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's the power of the resurrection of death from life. Life from death. Don't want to get that one backwards. Life from death. And in this conclusion, again, he's calling back. He wants us to have that power. He wants us to know and understand that we have that power and that strength of his might. And isn't this one of the fundamental points of this whole metaphor of the armor of God? On our own, we are weak, we are powerless, we are vulnerable. There is no um, comparable exhortation in ancient Greek literature of a general on the eve of a great battle telling his soldiers to put their armor on. And think about it for a moment, why there's no comparable exhortation. Um, You don't have to tell a soldier to put his armor on before a battle. Um, As this last week of temperatures in the 20s, sometimes I take our dog out for a pre-dawn walk. Millie gets very impatient in the morning, and it's 22 degrees. No one had to tell me to put a coat on, or to put a hat on, or gloves, or shoes, or socks. Because it was cold out there. It's natural. No one would step into battle naked, stripped of their armor. Imagine being put on a football field. My daughter and I were watching a football game. We saw one of these 300-plus linemen. He said, just imagine what that guy would do to me if he ran into me. Imagine stepping onto a football field to play middle linebacker with all these massive bodies around without any pads on, any equipment, a helmet on your head. Paul says, put on, therefore, the whole armor of God. And it's this Greek word, the whole armor which has come over into English as panoply, panoply. Greek soldiers were known as hoplites, the hoplites because of their armor, because of their arms, and pan hoplite, all arms, the whole armor. The emphasis is on its comprehensiveness, head to toe, helmet to shoes, breastplate, shield, sword. The whole armor of God. 
The old man is put away. The new man has been dawned. And there is a tension here, as there is uh, throughout the whole epistle. God has done everything for your salvation, and you're called to live in the light of what he has done. And that's the same tension of the armor, right? There it is. There's the armor. Have you, have you put it on? Have you taken it up today? Are you living by faith? Are you reading his word? Are you looking to him for truth? Now it could be, it's called God's armor, the armor of God. And this relationship, this genitive relationship can be a possession, right? It could be armor that comes from God. My daughter is smarter than I am. That's why she's reading Homer in high school. But she's recently read the Iliad. And Achilles literally has divine armor. And there are a number of commentators on this passage who say that Paul is drawing upon this Greek image, which is still very present even in the first century. And he's saying Christians who are despised and Christians who are often called atheists by the world. Why were Christians called atheists? Because they didn't believe in the gods, right? These atheistic Christians have their own armor. They are, in fact, the heroes of this story. And Achilles was invincible because he had this divine armor that he could put on. It gave him strength and power. And Paul is saying, we have armor too. It's the armor that Christ fashioned. It's the armor that he wore. You saw in Isaiah 11, the righteousness that is his, his breastplate is righteousness because it came in his judging, his doing, his acting, his holiness. So not only has God fashioned this armor for us, not only is it divine in its origin, it is his strength, his truth, his word that we receive, but it is Christ's own armor. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. It's God's own armor. So there's this tension in this indicative imperative picture of Ephesians. God has done it all. Get cracking. God has done it all. It's a fight. God has done it all. What am I to do? The imperatives of the Christian life. Is that we might know, that we might grasp, that we might understand his love, his care for us, his provision for us. And if the first reason we need armor, the first necessity of armor is our weakness, two additional reasons are the nature of the contest we find ourselves in and the character of our opponent. We need armor for a purpose that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And this image of armor conjures up warfare in a battle. The Christian life isn't a game of chess or checkers. We're not playing golf. We don't take mulligans, you know, we don't have lunch before the back nine. Now, there are other biblical metaphors of the Christian life. Paul in Ephesians has talked about growing up to maturity. The Christian life is kind of like one's childhood. He, he wrote, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. You see there, there's the devil's schemes and cunning and there's human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we could talk about the Christian life as growth, maturity. Agricultural models obviously come into play, right? It's a field. The sower sows the seeds. 
30, 60, 100 fold. Paul talks about the Christian life as training for a contest or a race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Similar to a race, we could think of the Christian life as a pilgrimage or exile. Peter, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And the idea of a pilgrimage or an exile is that we're returning home, right? We're on a great journey. I almost started thinking life is a highway, but I stopped myself. But Paul reminds us here with this metaphor of warfare. He reminds us here of the urgency and the importance that we are in a contest, that we are at war. Also, First Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have an opponent who wants to kill us. He wants to destroy the church. And growing up to maturity, making progress in our pilgrimage, those things are all true. But Paul is drawing in here Christ's uh, imagery of, of the parable of the virgins, for instance. Watchfulness. Readiness. Paul will close. Keep alert with all perseverance in your prayers. Vigilance. Paul uses this word here. Uh, we do not wrestle. And some people have said, well, this is kind of strange because he's talking about warfare and then he seems to be talking about wrestling, like the Olympic sport. But the fact of the matter is that much of ancient warfare was hand-to-hand combat. And indeed, wrestling was developed as training for war. It was a sport to train up people so that they might stand. If you're on the battlefield and you get knocked to your feet, you're probably going to get trampled and killed. And so we see this word here four times. Stand. The necessity of standing. Put on the panoply that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the panoply, he repeats, that you might be able to withstand in that evil day. And then when he comes to the, the, the close of this opening call, and having done all that, stand firm. Stand, therefore. Paul saying, take your stand. The theme of unity that runs throughout, especially the second half of this epistle, that Paul has been developing is important here as well. Um, when I was... A uh, lot too many stories today. But when I was a freshman in high school, I played my first ever tackle football game. And it was really, really ugly. Um, our entire high school was made up of a team of most of us had never played tackle football before. We were putting on helmets and pads and we didn't know what to do with them. And uh, I was uh, a running back. I carried the ball. I think I probably carried the ball five or ten times for maybe negative 20 yards. It was like I was running into a wall all day. And the team we were playing, Thousand Oaks, California, uh, they had grown up with a much more developed youth football league. And they all knew what they were doing. And they played as a team. And their defensive line and their offensive line. And the score was 21 to nothing. I just remember thinking, if that's football, I don't want any more of it because I just got destroyed. But we didn't play as a team. We weren't united. And you see, the metaphor, think of what you may or may not know about Greek battle. 
right? They developed the whole idea of the phalanx. The phalanx was men with uh, their implementations of war, with their swords and their shields being an impenetrable barrier and standing firm and moving forward together. Paul started by saying, unity is hard. Have zeal for the unity of the body of Christ. And the point of this metaphor of these weapons is not our personal piety. Have you spent X number of minutes or hours in prayer today? Have you, you know, sword fight? Have you memorized the word of God? The armor of God is in service to the unity of the church and the bond of peace, which we've been urged to preserve. And brothers and sisters, Satan desires nothing more than destroying the unity of the church, setting us at warfare among ourselves. And this doesn't mean when a church comes into conflict that one or the other side is, is you know, wearing Satan's uniform. The devil is attacking all of us. The schemes that we are all to withstand are against all of us. And so we all need to strive for this unity. And the history of the Christian church is tragically a history which is filled with many of Satan's battlefield victories. We have the Eastern Church and the Western Church. We have Protestants and Rome. We have Reformed and Lutheran. And we have Anabaptists and Radicals. And then, boom! Just look. When you're in seminary, and Presbyterian, a Reformed seminary, you say, this is the history of Presbyterian churches in America. And there's a little line graph. And it looks like a bowl of spaghetti. That's just the Presbyterians. And yet, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. For every victory in every local battle of Satan, there are untold moments where the children of God crush the head of the serpent under their feet, shod and prepared as they are with the gospel of peace and unity. Romans 16, 20, Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is closing words to the Roman church. And he's drawing upon that gospel promise, right? The gospel promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. But he's saying, notice what he's saying. You are going to crush the head of the serpent. You are going to bring the peace of the gospel to the world in and through the church of Jesus Christ. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we need spiritual armor to do so. That brings us to our second broad point here. God's armor is spiritual armor because the battle is not against flesh and blood. Now this sounds really blindingly obvious. And again, you can go read Frank Peretti if you want to get all sorts of beautiful, ornate descriptions of what all these angels and demons look like. But we shouldn't get hung up on the specifics of the armor. Paul's point here isn't that there is something specifically belt-like about truth or that the gospel has specific analogies to footwear. If anything, again, he's shaped by the language of Isaiah, by the, the armor that Christ himself as a mighty warrior has worn for us. But we also see that he he draws on these metaphors elsewhere in the New Testament. He talks about the breastplate of faith and love in Thessalonians. He talks to the Romans about putting on the armor of light. The whole idea of this metaphor is that we need spiritual power to stand faithful as a church. The weapons of flesh and blood are worthless against a spiritual foe. Recall... That as we opened this series, we gave some thought to the prominence in Ephesus of the temple of Artemis of Ephesia. 
that Ephesus was the great city of Asia Minor. It was the, the merchant, the bank, the storehouse for the wealth of Asia Minor. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, much like Washington, D.C., is a world global city. And you know how things go in world global cities. The coin of this realm is power, authority, wealth, riches, strength. And the saints at Ephesus must have felt as though they had walked away from every source of power and influence in the world to which they had access. They couldn't take part in the, in the same associations, in the same uh, parties and idolatry, the same temple sacrifices. They'd been severed from networks of relationships that would have protected them and given them standing in their community. And here they are with some traveler from Rome, Tychicus, reading a letter from a Roman prisoner. What power does Paul have to offer them? What strength? What riches? What comfort? Recall in chapter 3 that Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. It is for your glory. It's for the glory of the Gentiles who are now a part of God's people. And he began his exhortation in chapter 4. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul proudly is an ambassador in chains. We'll come to this in our third and final point in more detail. But he, he occupies a position of weakness and shame. And the church is called. We have a calling to walk as he has walked. To share in his suffering. It's not the place of the church in our world to be mighty and powerful, to be strong, to rule and govern. There's actually much debate about this, as strange as it may sound. Uh, Christian nationalism is trending in social media, in Twitter, on the internets. Um, I posted a quote from Calvin to Twitter. You guys don't want to hear about my life on Twitter. But the quote about slavery. And I said what Calvin said. That the gospel doesn't come in to change the laws of nations regarding slavery. It's a spiritual truth, a spiritual kingdom. And I think the word here is, is ratio. Most, the vast majority of people commenting on my post and sharing it were condemning me for saying such a thing. Actually, just quoting Calvin. And by far the most popular, you know, in terms of 40,000 views or whatever, people don't read what I post on social media. But what Calvin said was wildly popular because people were rejecting it. There's a desire for a powerful, robust, muscular Christianity. You've probably heard of uh, some churches in Moscow, Idaho. They hold something called No Quarter November, where we talk about how hard we fight against the world and against the culture of the world. There's a longing for more power and authority as the church grows smaller and smaller in our Western society. Brothers and sisters, we wrestle not with trends on Twitter. We will not conquer evil through lobbyists or political actions committees. It's not about fundraising or political strategy or getting the right people on the court. And it certainly isn't about literal weapons. The crusade du jour, whether it's in Palestine or in Europe or in the streets of our urban spaces and having enough cops on the streets. Those are all important public policy decisions. God has established civil rulers to rule those things. It is very difficult, though, for Christians in our town to embrace the spiritual nature of the warfare we've been called to. It's a very difficult warfare. It's not easier than, than the material warfare of our world. It's harder. 
This is a town, as we said, where political power, political warfare is the coin of the realm. Demonizing your enemy. That's not what we're called to as Christians. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love the world, to love one another. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not. It's emphatic in Paul's writing. And what is our armor? Just what, what are they? What is Paul talking about? Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. Those are spiritual things. And again, he's calling back with each and every one of those things. He's pulling out themes of his letter. Paul opened the letter by telling us that in Christ, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation and believed, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's a word of comfort and peace. Those who have learned Christ, Paul wrote, know that the truth is in Jesus. We've put away falsehood and we can speak the truth through faith in Christ, in love. We are children of light, and the fruit of that light is all that is good and right and true. Again, Paul says that we are created as part of the new creation after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That's where our righteousness comes from. And the gospel is the word of truth which brought us to salvation. And it's this great mystery uh, that the Gentiles, as Paul wrote in chapter 3, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That doesn't strike us as that important or significant. But Paul is saying the greatest opposition that the ancient world knew has been resolved by Christ in the gospel. That gospel is what brings unity to a church made up of Gentiles and Jews. And as Paul is in prison waiting probably to preach the gospel to the emperor, he's the ambassador for Christ in chains. Faith and salvation. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the word of God, his truth, is the source of this faith. As as Paul lifts off the elements of this armor, he's pointing to the spiritual riches he has in Christ. And he closes uh, that first part of the book, or rather, that first three chapters. He closes, do you remember, brothers and sisters, with this prayer? For this reason... He wrote at the end of chapter 3, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power. That's what the armor does. Right? He says, be strong in the strength of the Lord. That's what the armor is. It's the answer to this prayer. Through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. To know the love of Christ. The greatest thing you can have spiritually going forward in your life. In your marriages, in your homes, in your churches, in your workplace. Is that you might know the love of Christ. To know that you are loved. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing that gives you more resilience. An ability to endure. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's a love that fills us with the fullness of God. And Paul says in this closing prayer of that first half. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power. The power at work within us. It's the power of the resurrection. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's his message. That's the mystery of the gospel that he's been proclaiming. 
And it's kind of ironic, moving now to the third and final point, that Paul says, pray for me that I could preach the gospel, right at the end of writing the gospel for six chapters. It's a little bit of irony. But the third point is that we must pray at all times because we are, like Paul, ambassadors in chains. Sometimes Paul, um, his exhortation to prayer, I think, gets swallowed up in all the colorful language of the armor of God. But it's a part and parcel of it here. It's intertwined with it. It's crucial to Paul's closing argument. Prayer is the habit of faith that reveals precisely the trusting confidence and dependence upon God that is reflected in the whole armor. You need God at every point. You need His strength at every point. It's not about your clever intelligence. It's not about your strategies. It's not about, you know, something you learned on the internet or a book you read. You need the power of God. And that's what prayer is. It's a confession of the need and it's a provision of that power. And Paul piles up the comprehensive, just like the armor is comprehensive, panoply, all weapons, Head to toe. Paul piles up this comprehensive, all-embracing character of the believer's life of prayer. He uses the word all four times. Praying at all times. With all prayer and supplication. With all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. He's making a point. Elsewhere he says, right, pray without ceasing. And he's urging us here to understand your operating environment. The challenges of each and every day. You need Jesus. Each and every day. For the day-to-day, for the small things, for the big things. Pray. Notice here that Paul orients our prayers and directs our prayers primarily for the saints. I know Richard wanted me to sing for all the saints this morning. It's a tearjerker, right, Richard? Sorry. It would have fit so well, but, you know, it's a wonderful hymn for this text. But we're not going to sing it. It's a teaser. Not that we shouldn't pray for the world. But Paul's focus throughout this book has been relentlessly on our place, not as individuals in the world, but as members of the body of Christ. Let's pray for all the saints. This is a, back to the football analogy, this is a locker room speech. We're coming up on the fourth quarter. We're down. He's prepping his team for the second half and the home stretch. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time. The days are evil. And he says here, the evil day is coming. Be ready. We need to withstand the schemes of the devil in these evil days. Needless to say, Lone Ranger Christianity is utterly ruled out by this exhortation. And finally and powerfully, Paul concludes with a request for prayer for himself. The ambassador in chains. Now this idea, ambassador in chains, is a radical concept. Because an an embassy, an emissary, was a protected person in the ancient world. If you can't send emissaries from one side of the battle lines to the other, you know, under the protection of the white flag, or to the throne room of the other king, it breaks down all international relations. And they knew this in the ancient world. An ambassador, if you were to throw an ambassador in chains, was to give up and just to declare total war. Diplomatic immunity was a thing. And so Paul is saying... I'm an ambassador of the great king. And I'm in chains, as he said in chapter 4, for him, for a purpose, for the Gentiles, for your glory. And it's because of those charges in Jerusalem that he had brought a Gentile into the temple courts, which was a lie. 
that he was sent to Rome and he could have been set free. And he said, no, I appeal to Caesar because I'm going to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the highest and the lowest. And he's preparing, he's preparing to go see Nero, to preach the gospel to Nero. And the majesty of the gospel is that no sinner, Nero, who's gone down in history as sort of a cross-dressing, transgender, obscene, Rome-burning, Christian-destroying, crazy character, is no further from the grace of Christ than you or I. Because there's no barrier now that Christ has died for sinners between him and the kingdom of God. Paul said, pray that I would have boldness. This idea of boldness. It's another example of the, of the comprehensive language. Because the, the word for boldness, it runs throughout the New Testament. It's a beautiful word and a beautiful concept. It's the idea of peresia. All words. May I be free. May I have the boldness to say everything that's on my heart. It's such an important concept. And it comes to us from the Greek city-state. From the, from the early moments of democracy. That any citizen could say anything. Well, within limits, right? In in. The city-state. But the author of the Hebrews says, we have boldness now to enter into the throne room of God because of what the Messiah, the mediator, has done for us. We have boldness to speak to one another, to speak to the world. And Paul says, pray that I could have boldness, that I could be frank and clear in spreading forth this mystery. Explaining that I'm not only defending myself to Nero... I could have been set set free long ago, but I'm pleading with him for his very life, for his very soul. Paul asks that he might have this boldness. He's drawing upon the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, behold, beware of men. This is the nature of the warfare and the time in which we live today, brothers and sisters. For they will deliver you over to courts, and they'll flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, and bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Paul says, may God give me the words to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Paul asks for prayers that the right words might be given to him. And so, brothers and sisters, in closing, we might ask for the right words. To speak the truth in love with our neighbors, with the body of Christ, with our neighbors in the world. It's interesting that Ephesians closes in a very similar sense to the book of Acts. Remember how the book of Acts closed. That Paul lived for two years in Rome at his own expense. This this period of time. And he welcomed all who came to him. And he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. With all boldness. Exactly what he's asking prayers for. And without hindrance. He's an ambassador in chains. It is in our weakness. That the strength of Christ Jesus. To save sinners is made known. To a world lost. And in bondage to sin and death. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, that you would give us the words to say. How to speak frankly and truthfully with our neighbors in the church. As we share with one another our longing to be made after the image of Christ. And to the world, as we share with them the words of life, of eternal life, 
Lord, we pray that we might not be afraid of the world's condemnation because no disciple is greater than his master. And even as Jesus was rejected and condemned to the cross, so too we know that we will be rejected as we are his witnesses, bearing witness to the truth of his resurrection. Dear Lord Jesus, be with us this day as we seek to love one another, as we turn from our sins and embrace the truth of Christ and put on the new man that we might be remade after the image of righteousness and holiness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.